This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It was still early in the morning on November 4th, 1993. The Clackamas Town Center Mall wasn't open yet, but the head of security was already in his office getting ready to make his rounds. Today, the mall played host to the Northwest Pacific Regional Figure Skating Championships. The competition was already a huge event for Clackamas, but it was made all the more exciting by the headlining competitor, 23-year-old Tanya Harding. Tanya had trained at the rink for the last two decades. Now, she was in the big leagues, and this would be her homecoming. Tickets sold in record numbers. Her Portland neighbors eager to see her skate. Every program included a signed headshot of Tanya, the proceeds would help her get to the Olympics in February. Which is why every employee needed to be on their A-game, especially security. But just as he topped off his coffee mug to walk the perimeter, the head of security got a call. When he picked up, a deep voice on the other end said, if Harding skates, she'll get a bullet in the back. Then the line went dead. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second episode on Olympic figure skater Tanya Harding and her alleged involvement in the assault on fellow skater Nancy Kerrigan. As we covered last week, Tanya grew up in an unstable and abusive environment, but still managed to excel as a competitive figure skater. 
She made history in 1991 as the first American woman to attempt and land a triple axle jump in competition. This week, we'll see how the rivalry between Tanya and fellow skater Nancy Kerrigan intensified leading up to the Lillehammer Olympic Games in 1994. After a brutal attack six weeks before the competition, the two rivals were overtaken by a media firestorm. The 1994 games became about one thing only, Nancy and Tanya. The world watched with unparalleled interest as the two women took their final shots at Olympic gold. At the 1992 Alberville Olympics, the American team gave a strong showing in ladies' singles figure skating. Christy Yamaguchi took gold, Nancy Kerrigan took bronze, and 21-year-old Tanya Harding took fourth, just outside of medal range. Afterward, Yamaguchi retired from amateur competition for a more lucrative professional career. With a gold medal in her pocket, she gained endorsement deals, a spot in the ice capades, and much more. Her departure left the field open for a new American women's champion. Obviously, the two top contenders were Nancy and Tanya. But Nancy had a slight edge over Tanya. She had the more traditional ice princess look that was expected of female figure skaters. Even with just a bronze medal, Nancy was offered sponsorship deals with Campbell Soup, Revlon, Reebok, Avion, Ray-Ban, and even Xerox. She wasn't a champion yet, but she already looked like one. As Portland reporter Ann Schatz described, Nancy was right in line with all the other darlings. She fit the DNA, the mold, the MO, whatever you want to call it, Nancy fit it. Good for her. But you know, Tanya is just burning. She is absolutely burning. Tanya wasn't seeing any of that kind of money. And between the two of them, she was much more desperate for cash than Nancy Kerrigan. Media portrayals of Nancy and Tanya have exacerbated the supposed class difference between the two women. Nancy was seen as polished and white-collar. Tanya was depicted as blue-collar and even described herself as trailer trash. But Nancy Kerrigan also came from a working-class family. She certainly had a more stable childhood than Tanya did, but she didn't have any more money or privilege in her upbringing. Her dad was a welder, and her mom was a legally blind homemaker. And yet, Nancy was more readily accepted by the snob sport world of figure skating. One judge commented, she was raised as a lady. We all noticed that. That refined quality was always elusive to Tanya. Over the years, her coaches tried to smooth some of her rougher edges, but it only made Tanya rebel more she could land a triple axel. Who cared if she minded her P's and Q's? Well, the judges. For years, Tanya felt like they treated her differently and gave her lower marks because she lacked some feminine airs and grace. Sarah Marshall discussed this phenomenon in her article about Nancy and Tanya titled Remote Control. Marshall wrote, when it came to the technical merit score, judges' rankings were more or less objective. Despite its specific list of requirements, artistic impression was a far more elastic score. 
Judges could be influenced by a skater's costume or appearance or simply by some ineffable quality that struck them somehow as right. Right for the moment, right for the event, right for the sport. And to many on the judging panel, there was something about Tanya Harding's overall package that just wasn't quite right. Not in the way that it was with Nancy. Tanya felt this was all too clear at the 1993 U.S. Figure Skating Championships. It was the first national since Christy Yamaguchi's retirement. Therefore, it was a chance for the judging panel to signal who was destined to inherit the throne. Tanya wore a new skating dress for the competition, a deep, fiery red covered in red and gold sequins. She'd set her short program to Never by Moving Pictures, the song Kevin Bacon danced out his frustrations to in Footloose. She used the music to fuel a lively, ambitious routine with a triple loop, double loop, triple flip, and a death drop sit spin all within the first minute. But less than 10 seconds into her performance, the clasp on the back of Tanya's dress snapped. When she went up for her first triple loop, she immediately fell out of it and clutched her hands to her chest. She nearly exposed herself to the entire rink. Flushing with embarrassment, Tanya skated over to the judge's table to explain what happened. When the crowd realized the problem, they erupted in laughter, but the judge was clearly annoyed. He waved Tanya off the ice and then threw his hands up as if to say, it's always something. Indeed, this wasn't the first time, nor the last, that Tanya had problems with her clothing and equipment. At the previous year's Olympic Games, she'd had issues with her skate blades. One of them broke off in practice, and she wasn't happy with the replacement. She couldn't get the blade to stay in place in the boot, and it affected her balance on her jumps. She pointed to this malfunction as the reason she'd failed to land her triple axle. But at the 93 Nationals, once her costume was secured with a safety pin, Tanya retook the ice and skated a beautiful clean short program, hitting all of her jumps. Heading into the free skate, she was in second place behind Nancy Kerrigan. The judges held a blind draw to determine what order the top five skaters would perform in. Tanya was slated first and Nancy last. Tanya skated to a compilation of music from the Kevin Costner movie Robin Hood. She elected ahead of time not to attempt her triple axel. Instead, she replaced it with a double-axle, double-toe-loop combination, which she executed well, but not with her customary height and power. Her planned triple Lutz was downgraded to a double on the fly. She fell on the ice during a triple-toe combination. After she also fell out of a triple loop, commentator Dick Button remarked, you know, she's just not up to her usual self tonight. Well, Tanya wasn't the only one to have problems with her jumps. The subsequent skaters that night also fell. By the time it was Nancy Kerrigan's turn, Tanya still held on to second place, even with her lackluster showing. When Nancy took the ice to thunderous applause from the audience, Dick Button proclaimed, it is her crown to win. She has been so close so often, and now the moment is hers. Skating to a compilation from Beauty and the Beast, wearing a black, velvet, jewel-accented costume designed by Vera Wang, Nancy landed her first jump, a triple flip. Then she fell on the second, a triple lutz. 
But again, everyone had fallen that night, so Nancy knew she was allowed one, but no more. For the rest of her program, she scaled back some of her more difficult moves in the interest of a cleaner performance. She'd struggled with her triple loop in practice, so she downgraded it to a double loop. Her triple sow cow also became a double, but she landed them all. As she took her bows before the cheering crowd, Dick Button lamented, well, it was a very nice program, but conservative jumps, and like many of the women tonight, she didn't do all of the difficult triple jumps in the program. His fellow commentator bluntly agreed, it wasn't very inspired out here. But when Nancy's scores were posted, she still received very high marks for style and composition, where the judges allegedly have more leeway in their assessment. Nancy scored five 5.8s and four 5.9s. She was the new champion. And while it originally appeared that Tanya would take home third that night, when the final tallies were posted, she'd somehow dropped into fourth place behind Lisa Irvin and Tanya Kwiatkowski. It didn't make any sense to Tanya. As journalists Abby Haight and J.E. Vader detailed in their book, Fire on Ice, Harding, Irvin, and Nicole Bobeck all received some second-place marks. Irvin hit three triple jumps. Harding and Bobeck each had two. Kwiatkowski completed only one. It was extremely disappointing to Tanya and seemed to definitively confirm what she'd always known. The judges were against her. Throughout the rest of the 1993 season, Tanya struggled to impress the panel. Her best showing came at that year's Skate America, where she finished third. But even then, the bronze was a disappointment. It looked like she was going to win first after the short program, but she was forced to stop halfway through her free skate routine when one of her skate blades came loose. The judges allowed her to fix it and start again, but her concentration was completely thrown off. After a lackluster performance, she was knocked from first to third. Skate America was notable not only as Tanya's highest ranking performance of the 1993 season, but it was also a competition that Nancy Kerrigan did not participate in. Tanya did her best that year in the absence of her rival. As the 1993 season came to a close, Everyone was already looking ahead to the 1994 U.S. Figure Skating Championships to be held in January. They would serve as the Olympic trials for the Lillehammer Games in February. But because Tanya had placed fourth at the previous year's nationals, not third as she'd expected, she had to re-qualify to compete at the 94 nationals. After the way the scores had been adjusted and reshuffled in 93, it only added insult to injury. She repeatedly asked the U.S. Figure Skating Association for a waiver, but was denied. If she wanted a shot at the Olympics, she had to hold her nose and skate at a qualifying event. So Tanya registered for the Northwest Pacific Regional Championships, though she privately voiced that she felt the entire thing was beneath her. Then, on the day of the competition, someone phoned in a death threat against Tanya saying, if Harding skates, she'll get a bullet in the back. After speaking with the USFSA and rink security, it was ultimately decided that Tanya shouldn't skate that night. 
And at first, the skating association considered granting Tanya the free pass to nationals she so desperately wanted. But in the days that followed, members of the association grew suspicious about the source of the death threat. Maury Stilwell, one of the USFSA vice presidents, expressed his concerns that the whole situation was just a little too convenient. He felt that Tanya had staged the entire thing to get out of competing at the event. He pointed to the fact that two days after the supposed threat, she was out in public signing autographs. Not exactly what you'd expect for someone whose life had been anonymously threatened. In addition, someone leaked the specific details of the threatening phone call to the press. Only a handful of people knew the full extent of the situation. Most had just been told that there was a security issue. Therefore, the USFSA insisted that Tanya still had to skate at a regional competition to qualify for nationals. She didn't have to place, she just had to skate. Tanya selected that year's NHK trophy in Japan as her qualifier. But the results of the competition just added fuel to her burning resentment. She skated a clean short program, but was ranked seventh, behind two skaters who had both fallen on their jumps. She managed to claw her way up to fourth place in the free skate, a huge feat. But Tanya still said she felt like she was gypped because the rest fell on their butts. As detailed in Fire on Ice, she bitterly told her ex-husband, Jeff Galuli, she had skated well, better than the other skaters, and the judges had marked her down. They wouldn't let her win, even when she deserved it. Even though, at the end of the day, it didn't even matter what place she got at the NHK trophy, when she returned home afterward, Tanya simmered with indignation, and she carried that rage and resentment with her all the way to Detroit for the 1994 U.S. Championships. Coming up, the kneecapping heard round the world. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. The 1994 U.S. Figure Skating Championships were 23-year-old Tanya Harding's final hurdle on her path to the Lillehammer Olympic Games, her last shot at a gold medal. But her season leading up to the national competition in Detroit was rocky. She'd been plagued with equipment malfunctions, illness, and what she considered to be biased judging she was quickly approaching her final opportunity to fulfill the goal that had consumed her entire life since the age of four. And she didn't feel great about her chances. Every time lately that she skated against Nancy Kerrigan, her rival came out on top. Nancy was not only the favorite to win the 94 Nationals, but the world was treating her spot on the Olympic team as a given as well. At the end of 1993, a plan started to formulate to take Nancy down and give Tanya an edge. 
Tanya Harding's involvement in the events leading up to the 94 championships has been widely speculated but never confirmed. Her ex-husband, Jeff Galuli, alleged that she was 100% involved in the plot to attack Nancy Kerrigan from the very beginning. Tanya insists to this day that she only learned of Jeff's plan after the fact. What we can be sure of is this. Jeff Galuli was undoubtedly aware of Tanya's feelings of persecution by the judging panel during the 1993 season. Even though the pair legally divorced in August of that year, they reconciled shortly after and resumed living together. She even skated under the name Tanya Harding Galuli. Tanya alleged that she only reunited with Jeff to help her Olympic chances. As journalist Sarah Marshall explained, Tanya said she had attempted reconciliation with Jeff following their divorce because a representative from the United States Figure Skating Association told her, if I wanted to make the Olympic team, I need to make myself a stable life. They said I had a stable life when I was with him, married, settled down, and they wanted to make sure I was still going to be that way to go to the Olympic Games. This meant that when Tanya returned from the NHK trophy to their shared rental house in Portland, complaining about how she'd been treated, Jeff heard every word of her gripe. Whether he was spurred by Tanya directly or whether he took matters into his own hands, Jeff Galuli decided to even the playing field for his wife at the 1994 Nationals. In mid-December of 1993, Jeff called one of his childhood friends, 26-year-old Sean Eckhart. They'd remained close enough over the years while also occupied with their own side projects, Jeff with Tanya and Eckhart with his fledgling personal security business. Jeff relayed to his old friend the unfair treatment Tanya received in the skating world and how the judges never looked twice at her when she skated next to Nancy. According to Jeff, it was Eckhart who first suggested injuring Nancy to take her out of the competition. He said that, for a price, he knew a guy through his bodyguard work who could slice her Achilles tendon and knock her out of the running. Jeff was admittedly intrigued by the idea. With Nancy out of the way, Tanya would shine. How much would it cost? Well, it would be a rush job since the national competition in Detroit, Michigan was only a few weeks away. For the hit, travel, accommodations, Eckhart estimated $4,500. Jeff balked at the figure. He couldn't afford more than $2,000. But maybe he could find some more money from a donor. Several people had taken an interest in Tanya's Olympic dream and offered financial support. Of course, none of them ever imagined that their donations might be used to pay a hitman. While Jeff mulled over the price tag, Eckhart started making plans. Even if he didn't have Jeff's go-ahead yet, they were working on a tight timeline. They had to be ready if the word came down. Though Eckhart claimed to have a decade of experience in personal security and counterterrorism, he'd never actually had a real client before. His only experience came from books like The Poor Man's James Bond and The Anarchist's Cookbook. But now, here was a real job for him to finally prove his skills. Furthermore, he figured that if Tanya made the Olympic team, 
and went on to win the gold medal, her celebrity status would require her to hire a full-time bodyguard. If he got this right, he'd have a job for years to come, and his personal security business would finally be off the ground with a flagship client. Less than a week after his conversation with Jeff, another man entered the conspiracy, 29-year-old Derek Smith. Derek shared Eckhart's love of espionage and counterterrorism. Despite lacking any formal training, he hoped to one day open his own paramilitary survival training school. He even thought Eckhart could teach classes there on how to be a bodyguard. Derek had recently quit his job and thought it might be time to finally get the school off the ground. When he called Eckhart in late December, he thought he might be able to recruit his help. But in the course of the conversation, Eckhart mentioned that he was looking to arrange a hit. Did Derek know anyone who'd be willing to rough up a figure skater? Derek's 22-year-old nephew, Shane Stant, was a bodybuilder, martial arts enthusiast, and had previously been arrested for fighting and stealing a car. Derek thought he was the perfect candidate. He called Shane on December 23, 1993, to give him the details of the job and see if he was interested. Currently unemployed, Shane was willing to attack Nancy Kerrigan, but refused to cut her Achilles tendon. He was confident he could still hurt her landing leg bad enough that she wouldn't be able to skate without knifing her. It's possible that he was weighing the consequences of felony assault versus attempted murder. Either way, he agreed to the job. The next day, he visited a tactical supply store and purchased a 21-inch retractable baton for $58.56. By the time Jeff and Eckhart reconnected after Christmas, the plan had snowballed. Jeff claimed that he tried to call the whole thing off, but Eckhart told him it was too late. The wheels were already in motion. On December 29th, Shane Stant boarded a 6.37 a.m. flight to Boston. He planned to rent a car and drive to Tony Kent Arena in Cape Cod, where Nancy practiced. There's some debate about how Shane knew where Nancy practiced. According to Jeff Galuli, Tanya was directly involved in obtaining that information. He alleged that she called a sports journalist who lived on the East Coast, Vera Morano, and asked her where Nancy skated under the guise of settling a bet. Again, Tanya denies any involvement in the planning of the attack. However, Morano testified to the FBI that Tanya indeed called her in late December of 1993 and asked her not only for the name of Nancy's rink, but also her home address in Cape Cod. Morano was only able to provide the former. While this may seem damning, Ultimately, asking where Nancy practiced doesn't prove anything about Tanya's knowledge of the planned attack. Once in Boston, Shane's assault plans were derailed almost immediately. When he tried to rent a car to drive the 80 miles to Cape Cod, his credit card was declined. Apparently, he'd grabbed his girlfriend's card instead of his own. Because the name didn't match the one on his license, the rental company wouldn't accept it as payment. So he checked into a hotel by the airport using his real name and asked his girlfriend to overnight his own credit card as soon as possible. 
It didn't arrive until late in the day on December 30th, so Shane couldn't rent a car and make the drive until the next morning. By the time he arrived at Tony Kent Arena on the afternoon of December 31st, Nancy Kerrigan had already finished practicing and left for the day. Then she headed south to her parents' house in Stoneham, outside Boston, for the holiday weekend. In fact, it's possible that Shane and Nancy passed each other on the interstate as he drove north and she drove south. But Shane didn't realize Nancy was already gone. So for the next two days, he staked out the arena, waiting for her to appear. Thinking it would help him avoid suspicion, he moved his car to a different spot in the parking lot every 30 minutes. Finally, on the morning of January 3rd, Shane called the arena and asked when Nancy was coming in to skate. He told the operator that his daughter was a fan and wanted to see her on the ice. The woman on the other end informed him that Nancy had already left for nationals in Detroit. Panicked and running out of money, Shane bought a Greyhound bus ticket from Boston to Detroit. It put him in the city late in the day on January 4th, three days before the competition was slated to begin. Back in Portland, with no news of an attack on Nancy, Jeff Galuli assumed he'd been played and that Shane had run off with the money. Disappointed, he and Tanya boarded a flight to Detroit. On January 6, 1994, 24-year-old Nancy Kerrigan was wrapping up a practice session at Kobo Arena. The senior ladies' competition was set to begin the next day. The Lillehammer Olympics, just six weeks away, dominated every conversation. Nancy wore one of her favorite skating dresses, all white with an illusion neckline and lace sleeves. As she stepped off the ice, she slipped rubber guards on her skate blades and headed for the locker room. Her coaches, Evie and Mary Scottvold, followed behind her. They stopped to talk to an old friend as Nancy slipped behind a blue cloth curtain blocking the hallway to the locker room. Suddenly, Evie heard Nancy cry out. He and Mary rushed behind the curtain and found Nancy on the ground, clutching her right knee and shrieking in pain. She'd been attacked. A man had bashed her leg with a metal baton. Witnesses described the assailant as a large man in a black cap and leather coat. He was over six feet tall and at least 200 pounds. But before anyone could catch up with him, the attacker smashed through a locked glass door and fled the scene. As Nancy sat on the ground, rocking back and forth in pain, she asked over and over between sobs, why, why? But the answer to why was self-evident. This was about the Olympics. Nancy was the defending U.S. champion and a clear favorite to make the team. Someone wanted to stop that from happening. The question wasn't why, it was who. Who stood to gain the most from knocking Nancy out of the running? Within days, the entire world felt they knew exactly who was responsible. Tanya Harding. Coming up, the police launch an investigation as Nancy and Tanya prepare for the 1994 Olympics. Now back to the story. On Thursday, January 6, 1994, 
24-year-old Nancy Kerrigan was attacked in Detroit's Kobo Arena after a practice session for the U.S. Figure Skating Championships. The violence of the thing was astounding to both the skating world and the general public. Immediately, they asked, who would do such a thing? And just as soon, the world had their suspicions about who was responsible. Nancy's biggest rival, 23-year-old Tanya Harding. As New York Times reporter Michael Janofsky wrote in his coverage of the event, besides Kerrigan, the victims were fair play and sportsmanship, as the January 6th attack revealed the dark, desperate motives that sometimes drive people to break rules and laws as a shortcut to fame or fortune or both. Tanya alleged that she first heard about the attack a few hours after it happened. One of her coaches woke her up in her hotel room and delivered the news. Then she had to put on her skates and go to her own practice session in the Kobo Arena, yards away from where the attack occurred. She said that everyone on the ice that day, herself included, was shaken by the attack because no one had been caught yet. In an interview, she referred to the death threat she received the previous November, saying, I know how she feels, and I feel really bad that this happened. I was looking forward to competing against her, and I just hope that she's okay. The next morning, January 7th, Nancy Kerrigan and representatives from the U.S. Figure Skating Association gave a press conference. The attack on Nancy hadn't broken any bones, but she had a severe bruise on her right kneecap. She wouldn't be able to compete and probably wouldn't be able to join the 1994 Olympic team either. Over the next two days, Nancy watched the senior ladies competition from an upper deck box. When it was Tanya's turn to take the ice for her live televised free skate, ABC displayed her horoscope for the day. A long cherished goal moves within reach. You feel elated. The outside resources or talents you need are available. Your leadership skills put you ahead of the pack. Tanya set her routine to a compilation of music from Jurassic Park and opened with a series of dramatic balletic turns, almost mimicking the movements of a raptor stalking through the jungle. Then she took off and landed a huge triple lutz, Her next move was scheduled to be the triple axel, but on the fly, she downgraded it to a double. It was a conservative choice, but one that served her well. She nailed it and every jump that followed. After her finale spin combination, Tanya struck her pose on the ice. While the arena filled with applause, Tanya clenched her fists in victory. She'd done it she'd proven that she still had what it took to be a champion. And her marks from the judges reflected it for once. In technical merit, she earned five 5.8s and four 5.9s. Composition and style was less unanimous, but impressive all the same. Two 5.6s, two 5.7s, two 5.8s, three 5.9s. She'd done it. With those scores, Tanya clinched the gold medal. She was the national champion, and she was headed to the 1994 Olympics. Initially, it looked like everything was going according to plan. Nancy was out, and Tanya was in. The police had no leads on Nancy's attacker. 
Witnesses couldn't even agree on the assailant's race, and the police composite looked nothing like Shane Stant. But before they could even fly home from Detroit, the tide turned. Citing an obscure rule, the Figure Skating Association and Olympic Committee angled to give Nancy a spot at the games. Normally, the second-place finisher, 14-year-old Michelle Kwan, would join Tanya in Lillehammer. But the association decided to take a closer look at the bylaws for Nancy Kerrigan's sake. Michelle was young. She'd surely get another Olympics. But Nancy? This was her last chance, and everyone felt like she'd been robbed of her opportunity. They decided that Nancy and Tanya would take the two-team roster spots and Michelle would be the alternate. If Nancy couldn't get her leg in shape in time for the games, Michelle would step in. But Nancy and her team were determined. She was going to compete, and there was nothing Tanya could do about it. Even worse, the police got a break in the assault case. An anonymous tipster gave them the name of one of the men involved, Sean Eckhart. Apparently, Eckhart recorded some of his conversations with Jeff Galuli and Derek Smith about planning the attack on Nancy Kerrigan. Then, after it occurred, he was so proud of the job, he played the tape for friends and neighbors. As journalist E.M. Swift explained, for Eckhart, that tape was proof, real proof, that he wasn't a blowhard. Something he had planned had actually come to pass. World history had been changed, and he didn't seem to care who knew it. Once Sean Eckhart's role in the attack was revealed, the investigation snowballed. After several conversations with FBI investigators, Eckhart signed a confession on January 13, 1994, just a week after the assault. That same day, Derek Smith also confessed. On January 14th, Shane Stant turned himself into the FBI and also signed a confession. Four days later, Tanya herself spoke with the FBI, accompanied by her lawyer. The questioning lasted over 10 hours. At first, she denied any knowledge of the attack and defended her husband, Jeff, saying there was no way he was involved in the assault. But later in the interview, Tanya changed her tune. Two things happened. First, during the break in the interrogation, her lawyer released a press statement that Tanya and Jeff were separating. She was clearly getting ahead of the story. Second, she confessed to the FBI that she believed Jeff was involved in the planning of the assault. She admitted that she knew as recently as January 12th, after returning from Detroit, but had failed to notify the police because she was scared that Jeff would kill her. She later alleged that he held a gun to her head and raped her to threaten her into silence. Reporter Michael Janofsky wrote in his coverage of Tanya, it was clear what was going on. This was their real divorce. Only by establishing an unambiguous distance from Galuli and the others charged in the case could she stave off any decision by the Olympic Committee to drop her from the team. But even at that, in the final passage of the report of Harding's interview, the investigators quote her as having said, I just want to say I'm sorry. I hope everyone understands. I'm telling on someone I really care about. I know now he is involved. I'm sorry. 
The next day, January 19, 1994, Jeff Galuli was arrested for his involvement in the conspiracy. And almost immediately, he pointed the finger back at his wife. He claimed that Tanya not only knew about the plot to bump Nancy out of the running, but that she was actively involved in the planning and execution. Tanya claims that Jeff planned and then implicated her in the attack as a way to get back at her. She said in the Tanya tapes that he discovered she'd only reconciled with him because it was suggested by the U.S. Figure Skating Association and that she planned to leave him again after the Olympics. She said, when he found out, he came unglued. He told me he'd ruin me. There was already a media firestorm surrounding Tanya, but Jeff's arrest escalated it to a full-blown inferno. For the next four weeks, reporters and news cameras dogged Tanya everywhere she went. They lined the railing at the rink where she practiced. They camped out on her front lawn. They even had her truck towed in an attempt to flush her outside for an interview. The question on everyone's mind was whether or not Tanya would still be allowed to compete at the 1994 Olympics. If she'd plotted to attack one of her teammates, could she really skate alongside her? The U.S. Figure Skating Association and Olympic Committee considered this question and released a statement as such. They believed that the appropriate thing for Tanya to do was withdraw. In fact, they warned that if she later was convicted of any criminal charges, her skating association membership could be in jeopardy. But Tanya would have none of that. She claimed she hadn't broken any laws and hadn't been convicted of any crime, which meant that she had every right to skate in the Olympics. As always, Tanya had no time for other people's expectations. When the Olympic Committee tried to forcibly kick her off the team, she filed a lawsuit. She gave a press conference on January 20th, the day after Jeff's arrest, stating, Despite my mistakes and my rough edges, I have done nothing to violate the standards of excellence in sportsmanship that are expected in an Olympic athlete. I have devoted my entire life to one objective, winning an Olympic gold medal for my country. This is my last chance. I ask only for your understanding and the opportunity to represent my country with the best figure skating performance of my life. But it was a wish that wasn't to be. With a constant swarm of press and attention, Tanya spent the month leading up to the Lillehammer Games in a fog of stress and suspicion. Cameras and reporters following her every move. Journalists called her house and knocked on her door at all hours of the day. She was barely able to sleep, let alone get her head in the game. Her home rink was in a public mall. Every jump of her practice was accentuated with dozens of camera shutters and flashes. As soon as she stepped off the plane in Lilyhammer, the attention grew tenfold. The entire world was laser-focused on the ladies' figure skating competition, waiting to see what these two rivals would do on the ice, or perhaps to each other. Figure skater and commentator Brian Boitano said, Let's face it. People will watch Tanya and Nancy to see if they get in a fistfight. It's terrible. They're watching for the wrong reasons. On Wednesday, February 23, 1994, the ladies' short program commenced. 
After months of training and rehab, Nancy Kerrigan gave a flawless performance, made all the more impressive knowing what she'd gone through to get there. She ended the day in first place. Tanya, wearing the red and gold sequined outfit that snapped open at the previous year's nationals, gave a lackluster showing. She flubbed her first jump, a triple lutz, triple flip combination. It set the tone for the rest of her performance, which lacked her usual energy, and she ended the day in 10th place. At the free skate competition two days later, the stands were packed with fans. The announcer called Tanya Harding to the rink, but she didn't appear. The seconds ticked by, and the crowd wondered, had she suddenly decided not to compete after all? Was she trying to add even more drama to what was already one of the most dramatic games in history? When Tanya finally appeared on the ice, she was doubled over, adjusting her skate. Clearly flustered, she took her place in the center of the rink, shaking her head. She started her program, but deliberately fell out of her first jump. Her face crumpled. After all her work, all these weeks of pressure and press attacks and people telling her to just quit, the worst had happened. The lace on her right skate had snapped and the boot wouldn't stay on her foot. After everything she'd gone through to be there and compete, another dumb equipment malfunction had derailed her. Tanya was overcome by it all. She started to cry in the middle of the ice. She approached the judge's table and lifted her right foot up so they could see the issue. She tearfully explained what happened. As had happened so many times before, they allowed her to leave the ice and fix her skate. When she returned, she gave a good performance, hitting all her jumps, with the exception of the triple axle, which she downgraded to a double. It was a performance to be proud of, but ultimately not enough. She finished the day in seventh place. It was the end of her Olympic dream. Nancy Kerrigan, on the other hand, gave one of the cleanest, most impressive programs of her career. Wearing a gold, jeweled skating dress, skating to a Neil Diamond compilation, she showed the world that nothing could stop her from achieving her gold medal dreams, not even an assault. However, there was another skater on the ice that day that wanted the gold even more than Nancy and Tanya combined. Oksana Bayul. While everyone was focused on the greatest rivalry figure skating had ever seen, the 16-year-old Ukrainian orphan turned out to be a dark horse. She was the last woman of the night to skate. After Nancy's staggering free skate numbers, Oksana had to pull off an equally perfect program. She did that and more. In the final seconds of her routine, Oksana added in three extra jumps, landing them all, giving her the boost she needed to edge out Nancy. She went home with the gold, Nancy with the silver, Tanya with nothing. Tanya's lawyers had done everything they could to delay her criminal proceedings until after the Olympics so that the fallout wouldn't damage her shot at the games. But now it was time to face the music. On March 16, 1994, 23-year-old Tanya pleaded guilty to obstructing justice and hindering the prosecution. Her failure to report what she knew about the attack on Nancy Sooner was a Class C felony. She was sentenced to three years probation, 
500 hours of community service, and fined $160,000. On June 29th, the U.S. Figure Skating Association convened a panel to decide Tanya's fate within the sport. After two days of deliberation, they decided to strip her of the 1994 national championship win and revoke her membership in the association. This meant she was barred as both a skater and a coach from any USFSA-sponsored event for life. As Tanya put it, her life was over. She said, Truthfully, I don't remember much about anything after the Olympics because I lost everything. That was pretty much the worst thing that could ever happen to me. What am I going to do with my life now? Ironically, the scandal between Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding renewed interest in the sport of figure skating for a new generation. The 1994 Lillehammer Olympics were one of the highest viewed games in history, with an average nightly rating of 26. For comparison, the 1980 Miracle on Ice games averaged a 23.6. These were numbers comparable to the Super Bowl. Ticket sales at ice capades and skating competitions shot up. Endorsement deals for figure skaters increased tenfold. It was a massive boon to the sport. And Tanya was on the outside looking in, barred from participating in any of it. In the years following the 94 games, Tanya has made a living with a series of odd jobs in the occasional interview. She had a short career as a boxer, but also worked as a waitress and a mechanic. With the release of 2017's I, Tanya, starring Margot Robbie, she had a brief resurgence of fame. It wasn't until this time period that many of the details of her abusive marriage surfaced and the public started to reconsider her guilt or innocence. Journalist Sarah Marshall discussed this in her article, Remote Viewing. She wrote, as for Tanya's claims about her own innocence in the plot itself, any attempt to dismiss her version out of hand somewhat falls apart once one realizes that the dominant version of the story, the story the press picked up and popularized, and the story that endured largely for that reason, was Jeff's. Tanya's version of events is implausible only because it contradicts the story we've been familiar with for the last 20 years. Today, Tanya Harding is remarried and focused on raising her son. In April of 2018, she competed on Dancing with the Stars. She finished third overall behind fellow skater Adam Rapone and NFL quarterback Josh Norman. She maintains her innocence in the plot to this day. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Kerry Murphy with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Liebeskin. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Abigail Cannon and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 